Welcome to the Church at Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. Hey, well, good morning. Good to see you. What a great day out there. Uh, any NFL fans here today? All right. Any uh, San Francisco fans? Any San Francisco? All right. Not so many, huh? All right. How about Atlanta? Got any Atlanta fans? All right. Two of you. Great. That's awesome. Uh, good. How about uh, New England? Any New England fans? Oh, there we go. Any Raven fans? Uh, okay, so New England wins the day. So last service, it was uh, the 49ers. We're going to have a 49ers uh, New England Super Bowl. You heard it here first, all right? Uh, all right, we're going to be going to our time of teaching in just a minute. My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you're brand new, special welcome to you. We're so glad you're here with us. And inside your program is a message note sheet we use every week for our time of teaching. And so you want to definitely grab that out. That will uh, help, help you follow along. But before we do that, uh, just a couple of quick announcements. First of all, uh, not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday, uh, we're doing a special, what we call an encounter service here. And if you've never been, it's just an amazing night, uh, kind of focused time of, of worship, prayer, some vision casting. Uh, this time I'll be sharing a little bit more about uh, this assignment. We believe God's given us as a church to enlarge and refresh our campus and the, the project we, we plan to be kicking off this spring, later this spring. So I'll be giving you an update on that. Uh, in preparation for that, uh, I will be sending out an email this week that will have a little bit more about the assignment, uh, and it'll have uh, our 2013 proposed budget, 2013 proposed slate of elders, and we will be taking just a very brief vote on that at the encounter, and so uh, you'll have information. If you have questions about any of that, budget, elders, or whatever, uh, you can meet next week after uh, all the services. We'll have a Q&A time with uh, some of our elders and our director of finance uh, in room 101 over in the kids' ministry building uh, downstairs. And so um, that just kind of prepare you for that. So if you're, if you're not on our email list, uh, definitely want to take that little connect card out that's out in the bottom of your, uh, your, your, uh, in your program today. Fill that out, and then you'll be on. If you don't have email, uh, next week we'll have hard copies of the letter and elders and so on out at the point, our information center out on the patio, all right? But uh, we're going to go into our time of teaching now, assuming you all are ready. You guys ready to go? Yeah. All right, let's pray. God, thank you so much for what you're doing in our church and our lives. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who comes into our lives when we give our life to you and, and transforms, changes, leads, and guides us. As we talk today about the coming of the Spirit, we, we, we pray that, uh, that it should be a very insightful time where you'd speak to each of us by name and that by the time we go out, we would really know kind of what, what our next step in, in the journey is. And so we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're, uh, we're actually starting with three short stories. Uh, I'm calling them scenes from previous episodes because they're all, they're all important stories from Israel's history that leads up to uh, the story in the life of Jesus that we're going to be covering today. And so let me hit them real quickly. On the front of your note sheet there, there are the three passages of Scripture that, that cover these three stories. So story number one is a story of a man named Abraham. Uh, Abraham was the father of the Jewish race. When he was an old man, God gave him a miracle son, a, a boy named uh, Isaac when he was 100 years old. Now it's uh, probably 10, 15 years later. We're around the year 2100 maybe, uh, B.C., maybe 2100 years before the coming of Jesus. And God gives him this incredible command that he's to take his son, he's to take him to this, this mountain range about three days away, Mount Moriah, and he's to offer him there as a sacrifice to the Lord. And so it's an incredible request. Uh, it, it's just an amazing, uh, tough thing to do. Uh, interestingly, that about a thousand years after this, when King Solomon comes along, he will actually build the temple on Mount Moriah. So it's very significant what's going on here. Uh, and so sure enough, Abraham takes that journey uh, and, and he, he gets there. Uh, but, but the instructions God gives him are very important. So there in your note sheet, you'll see them in uh, Genesis 22. And I want you to pay close attention to the verbiage, all right? So he says, uh, take, take your son, take your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and I want you to go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. And so if you've never heard this story before, the good news is that Isaac doesn't die. That when they, when they get there, God says, hey, this was a test just to see if you love me, if you trust me. And God actually provides a ram there caught in the thicket uh, as a substitute for Isaac. And so this whole event becomes a picture of the greater son of Abraham that will one day come who will be the ultimate substitute for our sin, right? So that's, that's story number one. Okay, story number two. 
We're going to fast forward about 1,000, maybe 1,100 years in time. We're about the year 1,000 B.C. approximately. It's about 1,000 years before Jesus. And there's a king on the throne of Israel. His name is David. David, uh, God promises David that you're going to have a son. And this son, uh, one day, is going to come from your line. He's going to become a great king. In fact, he's going to rule the whole world. I will be like a father to him. He'll be like a son to me. And so David, later on, writes a song. He's a songwriter. He writes a song. We call them Psalms. Uh, and and it's, uh, he writes a song about the coming of this great son of his, this king. Um, and it's a, it's, a prophetic, it's a prophetic song. Hey, guys, we've got something going on over here this time. Over here, like this monitor maybe or something like that. So if you need to have someone come in and turn it off or whatever, I don't know what's going on. Um, all right, so, uh, so here's a song that he, he writes. Uh, it's there on your note sheet, Psalm 2. Uh, uh, God is speaking, and he says, I've installed my king. This is a prophetic psalm. God says, I've installed my king, this great king who's coming from the line of David. I've installed my king on Zion, which is Jerusalem, my holy hill. And now this king, this son of David is speaking, and this king says, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord, Lord, all caps, Yahweh. I'll, do, I'll, I'll proclaim the decree of, of Yahweh. And he said to me, so this is what this king is saying. He said, Yahweh said to me, you are my what? Son. So pay attention to that. You are my son. Today I become your father. Ask of me. I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. In other words, you'll rule the world and you will rule them with an iron scepter and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Okay, you'll have absolute control. And so the first story, uh, the story of this son that was taken, the son of love, to be the ultimate sacrifice, the, or to be a uh, picture of the ultimate sacrifice. The second one, the, the, this picture of this great king who's going to come from the line of David, who's going to rule the world. Uh, story number three. We're going to move forward about 300 years in time now. We come to the year 700 approximately. There's a man named Isaiah who's this great prophet. The nation of Israel has been disobedient to God for now hundreds of years. God has warned that unless you, can, unless you knock it off, that my discipline's going to increase to the place where uh, I'm going to have to remove you from the land. I'm going to take you. And so Isaiah actually prophesies that there, there will be a nation that rises up. There'll be a superpower in the Middle East uh, that's, that's called uh, Babylon, like modern-day Iraq, Babylon. And that it will come in and they will capture the nation and take them a thousand miles away from their homeland back to captivity. And sure enough, that prophecy comes true. And so, uh, so now Israel is in the, uh, the land of Babylon. We talked to this last week. They're wondering, have we gone too far? Have we rejected rule, God's rule too much? Uh, has he forsaken us? Are all his promises to our nation null and void? And so the prophet Isaiah speaks into this. And he, he prophesies about a mysterious leader who will rise up. And this leader he calls the servant of the Lord. Okay? Or, or it's actually the servant of Yahweh. And, and Isaiah, in his writings, he gives four long prophecies about the servant of Yahweh that will come. And what's so mysterious about this servant is that on the one hand, he's very gentle, he's mild, he's tender, he's compassionate. But on the other hand, he, he says he's going to bring justice to the whole world. He's, got, he's going to kind of restore the human race. He's going to turn all wrongs to right. And so normally that takes a lot of power to do that. And so there's these four different prophecies about the servant of the Lord, of Yahweh. And the last one is in Isaiah 53, which is about how the servant of Yahweh will die for the sins of the nation. But the very first prophecy is in Isaiah 42. And I want you to look at that. So Isaiah 42 says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, God is speaking, my chosen one, catch this verbiage, my chosen one in whom I delight, and I will put my spirit on him, I'll anoint him with my spirit, and he will bring justice, uh, social justice, end of oppression, war, poverty. He'll bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out uh, or raise his voice in the streets. So on the one hand, he'll be very mild. He's not going to be like a very you know, bombastic, large, uh, a larger-than-life type leader. Um, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Very tender. But in faithfulness, he will also bring forth justice. And he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes 
justice on the earth. And so this, this, this pro- prophecy about this uh, incredible servant of Yahweh who will come, who will uh, uh, be very tender on the one hand, very tough on the other, bring justice to all the world, and whom God will delight in this servant. All right, and so three stories, three important scenes from Israel's history in this long-running drama called Israel. And so the first scene, this, this, this son of Abraham, uh, bring your son, the son you love, uh, to Mount Moriah. Second scene, the scene uh, from King David, uh, you are my son, today I become your father, this great king. Third one, this servant of the Lord in whom God delights in, will anoint with his spirit uh, and will bring justice to the whole earth. Okay, three scenes from previous, uh, 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 previous episodes. And today what we're going to see is we're going to see these three scenes, think of them like three streams, they're going to flow together at one place, at one time, one person, at one river, about 20 miles away from where all three prophecies were given, all right? So today we are continuing this series that we started about two weeks ago called Jesus the King. And for those of you who are brand new, just so glad you're here with us. Uh, this is really a series about the life and teaching of Jesus. And uh, in this series, it's, we're, we're based for the most part on the writings of a, a, a man in the early church who's a leader. His name is Mark. He was a close personal friend, associate of the Apostle Peter. So he's building his whole story of Jesus on the firsthand experiences of Peter He's, he's writing it very early in the movement of Jesus. It's the first document we have about the life of Jesus, about 35 years after the life and, and death and resurrection of Jesus. He's writing it in, the, in the, uh, the center of the empire in Rome. He's writing it for new Christ followers to understand what it looks like to follow Jesus. He's writing it for people who are, are, are checking out Christ to share the story of, of Jesus Christ. And so what we've been doing the last couple of weeks is we've been looking at the intro to this letter. Now, the intro to the letter runs for the first 13 verses. And in the intro, there are three important events that Mark introduces us to that set the stage uh, for the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And so the first uh, episode we looked at last week, and that was uh, the coming of this this prophet. In the Old Testament, there had been a prophecy that before the day of Yahweh, before Yahweh came to the nation to establish his kingdom on earth, that before Yahweh came, a great messenger would come. It was called the voice. And so last week, we, we read about this voice who came. And who was that messenger? We studied last week. Yeah, John the Baptist. He was the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. We talked about uh, how he created a super highway for Yahweh to travel to the nation. And, and how in our lives, the way we create a super highway for Yahweh is through repentance, which, which is really uh, coming under God's leadership in our life. Well, today we come to the second of three introductory stories to set the stage, and it has to do with the arrival of the hero on the scene. And yet when the hero arrives on the set, uh, he's not exactly what you'd expect. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to uh, Mark chapter 1, or if you have your your notepads or your your apps or your phones, whatever you're reading on, go to Mark chapter 1. And there's a section there on your note sheet called the commission, the baptism of Jesus. And we're going to see what happens today when Jesus comes on the scene. So Mark chapter 1, we'll pick it up at verse 7. This is where we, we kind of ended up last week. So John is speaking, John the Baptist. He says, this was his message. After me, one will come more powerful than I the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and tie. So remember John's message, it's not about me. The reason I've come is just to introduce the person that's coming next. He's so powerful that I'm not really worthy to be his slave. And now he's telling us why uh, this person is so powerful. And he says in verse 8, he says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit. Okay, so a pivotal moment in the history of planet Earth. Uh, what, what had happened, this, this is an epic moment. This story we're about to look at is an epic story. And the reason I say that is because for those of you who have been long-time Christ followers, at a moment like this, you are at a distinct disadvantage. 
If you've never heard this story that we're about to read, you, you have a tremendous advantage. Because if you're a longtime Christ follower, we tend to miss the obvious because we've just so, become so familiar. And, and so what we're about to enter into is an epic story in human history. And, and so, uh, so, so what's, what's happened is that in the Old Testament, the prophets predicted that before Yahweh would come, that, that, that when he came and established his kingdom on earth, that he would pour out his spirit on all his people in an unprecedented way. It would be a new era in human history. So, for example, in in ancient times in the Old Testament, God only gave his spirit to a few people, uh, to certain prophets, certain priests, certain kings. But the day was prophesied that one day when Yahweh came and his kingdom came, He would pour out his spirit on all people to lead, to guide, to change us, to empower us, right? And so it's going to be the whole new era in human history. And what John is saying is that the one who comes after him will be the one that will unleash the Holy Spirit on the human race. Okay, that's what he's saying, this whole new era. And so what happens in verse 9, we get to meet the hero. And, And honestly, it's a very simple introduction. It says, at that time... Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in, in the Jordan. Very, very simple. Okay? Jesus comes, Nazareth, Galilee, Jordan. Uh, however, don't forget that in verse 1, uh, Mark already introduced us to the main character. Remember, uh, he says this is the, the euangelion, the gospel, the message about uh, Jesus, who is Yahweh's salvation, uh, Christ, Christos, Messiah, King. Uh, this is the message about Yahweh is salvation, who's the true king, the son of God. And so he's already introduced us, but this is the first time now historically Jesus walks on the scene. And, and when he comes up to the Jordan River, he tells us that he comes from the, uh, the region, which was in the north of Israel, called Galilee. Uh, Judea is in the south, region of the north called uh, Galilee. And, uh, and, 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 and then he comes from a, a little town called Nazareth. Now to us, uh, those are no big deal. You don't know big you know, place names. But, but for, uh, at the time of Jesus, this was very significant. And, and the reason is, Galilee was sort of like the wild, wild west of Israel. Uh, it was a long way from Jerusalem, the temple, the religious priests, and, and, and the key leaders of the nation. And so, uh, Galilee was the place where political rebellion against Rome would take place. It's, it's where the re- revolts would start. It, it, was, uh, it was a place where people were much more uncouth in general. Uh, it was the place where they, they didn't follow the law as, as strenuously. And so, so if you're at the time of Jesus, you don't expect the prophet to come from Galilee. You just don't, don't expect that. Uh, and then uh, secondly, uh, you don't expect him to come from a little town called Nazareth. You know, we, we know from history like from the, uh, the, the, the uh, Jewish historian Josephus I've often mentioned, that he talks about Galilee. He describes the villages, the weather, the, 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 what it was like, it was be- how beautiful it was. Uh, but he describes like 70, he names 70 of the main cities or towns or villages. Uh, Nazareth doesn't even make the list. It's so small, okay? And, and so a lot of scholars believe Nazareth was like less than 500 people, Okay. So, so this is kind of like us saying, remember, Galilee's to the north. Uh, uh, what, what, if, you're, if you're a Jew reading this, you're saying, and so Jesus came from, Naz- he came from Galilee and from Nazareth. It's kind of like us saying that, uh, you know, the Messiah, he came from Bakersfield. <laughs> right? Well, it wasn't actually Bakersfield. It was the region of Bakersfield. He actually came from Gorman. <laughs> anyway, not exactly what you'd expect. So anyway, so, so he, he comes from Nazareth, comes to Galilee, comes to be baptized. And first of all, I, I want you to, this is a little bit weird. Why did John baptize people? What was the whole point of that? Repentance, right? That they, they were supposed to come, they're supposed to confess their sins, and they're going to repent. Does anything strike you as a little bit odd with Jesus coming to be baptized? A little odd. It's like, what are you here for? What are you going to confess? Oh, nothing. <laughs> Come to repent? No, not really. Just want to be baptized, right? Uh, and, and so it's, it's almost you know, like we're told in Matthew's gospel, and I put the four different 
uh, accounts about the, the, the baptism of Jesus all there in your notes. If you want to check it out later. But in Matthew's account, we're told that when Jesus showed up, Math, uh, John the Baptist, who, remember, is Jesus' older cousin, uh, that John's like, what are you doing here? Like, you should be baptizing me, right? So, uh, uh, but Jesus said, hey, listen, just trust me. It's the right thing to do. And, and so it's almost as if Jesus is just like standing with this nation in their sin at the very beginning. It's like he's going to be their king. He's going to stand with them. He's going to represent them. And, of course, that's ultimately what he's going to do for all of us. He's going to go to the cross to represent all of us. So he stands with them. He's, he's going to be baptized. Now, they're bringing him out of the water. Something big happens. Something epic, epic happens. Uh, and this is where we, we often miss it. But Mark's going to use very powerful language. He's going to use a strong language in the Greek. He's going to use, he's going to describe it in present tense as if you're there, it's happening right in front of you. And so here we go. So verse, verse, uh, verse 10, it says, as Jesus was coming out of the water, he sees heaven being torn open, all right? So in the Greek, it's like heaven being ripped open. Uh, this, this something big. It's like heaven and earth are coming together at the baptism of Jesus. There's a famous verse back in Isaiah where, where uh, the, the prophet's saying, oh God, if you would only rip the heavens and, tear, and come down, we just need you to come down. Well, that's what's happening is that at the baptism of Jesus, uh, the Father is coming down to greet the Son. It's, it's very epic. And, and like I said, described in, in present tense of Jesus there, he's seeing all this happen. And so as Jesus was coming out of the water, he sees heaven being ripped open, the Spirit's descending on him like a dove. And so the Father uh, and the Spirit are, are now coming to the Son uh, here in his baptism. And, uh, and so this voice then is coming out of heaven, uh, which is very unusual, very epic, doesn't happen very often in the Bible. Uh, this voice is coming out of heaven, and here's what God says. And most scholars believe that at least two, probably all three of the opening stories that, we, that I told today, that all three of those, God is quoting himself, and, and he is bringing all of Israel's history together from the father of the Jewish race who had a son who would be sacrificed to the promise of the coming king of David uh, who would rule the world to the promise of this servant of Yahweh who would come and die for the nation that, that in this one pronouncement, uh, the father is bringing together all of Israeli history in his time and place, these three different streams of prophecy into this one river at the Jordan River. And so let's see if we can pick it out here. So here's what God says. He says, a voice came from heaven, and he said, you are my what? Son. Just like, remember in, in, in Psalm chapter 2, you are my son. Today I become your father. And he said, and, and you're my son whom I what? Love. And so Genesis 22, take your son, your only son, the son you love. And he says, uh, so you're my son uh, that, uh, that I love, and with you I'm well pleased. The servant of the Lord. Uh, back in, in Yah uh, when Yahweh says that with you I'm delighted, that the Spirit of the Lord is on his delight as he anoints with the Spirit. And so what you have in, in one person, in Jesus of Nazareth, you have the, the greater son of Abraham, through which it was promised that one day God would, would bless the whole world. You've got the promised king of Israel, and you have the servant of the Lord dying for the sins of, of the world. You have all three of those strains coming together at one time in one place. And so uh, this, this, at this moment, what, what's happening now is that God's affirming his son. He's commissioning him for ministry. He's equipping him with the power of the Spirit. And he's identifying who he is for John the Baptist uh, uh, there and for the others uh, seeing that this truly is the king of Israel. All right, so, so that's the passage. Now, what I want to do today, as the time we have, is unpack this. I want to talk about three principles that flow out of this passage that help us to understand who Jesus is, who we are, and what it looks like to follow him, all right? So there in your note sheet, uh, you have a section called Jesus of the Spirit, the start of something new. And let's jump in. Now, the first one to go a little faster, the second one a little slower, and the third one uh, we hope to get out by 1 o'clock. All right, so here we go. Uh, number one, number one, the, the first thing I want you to catch is that Yahweh uh, anoints Jesus with the Spirit. What we have in this event, this is a pivotal event in, in all of human history. Uh, th this is not just some little, hey, something that happened to Jesus. Uh, th this is a, a start of a whole new era as, as Jesus comes forth to be commissioned for his ministry. 
And God meets him there in a powerful way, and he anoints him with his spirit to equip him to carry out his ministry. Now, this is very important. This is exactly what the prophet said would happen. In fact, there in your note sheet, uh, you have a, a verse from Isaiah 42. This is the verse we started the day with, the third story. And this is what God said. Here's my, my servant, the servant of Yahweh, whom I uphold, my chosen one, and whom I delight. And I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. And so this is what's happening. So I want you to catch this. What's happening at the baptism of Jesus is, is God's doing several things. Number one, he's affirming his son. And I want to talk about this just for a second. If I could, just a sidebar. <laughs> this, says, this is not really about what we're mainly talking about today, but a sidebar. Is that as parents, th- this is one of the most important things that we do for our kids, is there's moments in their life we need to affirm them. And, and I think we often miss this that here's Jesus of Nazareth. He's coming to accept this calling on his life. This is going to be an incredibly difficult calling. And his father comes to him and says, Son, I just want you to know that I love you and I'm so proud of you, of what you've done. Those words are powerful, aren't they? Like, like how many of you men, how many of you men would just long for if your father once in your life just once in your life and taking you aside and said, I just want you to know, son, this, I, just, I, I love you. I'm passionate about you. I am just so thankful for you, and I'm so proud of who the man you're becoming to be. Like, like how many of us here as men never heard our father say that, that would long to hear our father say that? And can I tell you something, men especially, this applies to both moms and dads, but especially for us men, and especially for you men who have sons, This is such an important thing to realize the role you play in the life of your son of helping him grow into manhood, of those times in his life where you come alongside and you affirm your deep, passionate love for him and that you're with him and you believe in him and you're coming alongside and you're pleased with him, assuming you are, but uh, looking for those moments that you can affirm. All right, just a little touch of reality there. Uh, Okay, So, so, so the father's affirming the son Uh, He's identifying him. In fact, in John's gospel, John the Baptist said, I wouldn't have recognized him if this hadn't happened. And and so so this was God putting his seals of, of approval on Jesus. He really is the Messiah. He is the king. He is my son. And so that's happening. He's commissioning Jesus for his ministry. This is where the ministry of Jesus starts. Prior to this, he's living a, public, a, a private life, his first 30 years of his life. Now he's going into public life, and, and he's being commissioned, just like a president would be inaugurated or something. He's being, a father is, is commissioning. But the thing I want to pay most attention to is that this, this idea of equipping, that what's happening at Jesus' baptism is the father is sending the spirit on the son to equip him to live the life he's called to live and to carry out the the assignment that he's been given. And the reason I point this out is I think many times when it comes to Jesus, we have a faulty theology that comes back to bite us later on. And and this is how often, often we look at Jesus as if he's God in a bod, okay? Like like he's not a real, he's not like a real human being. He's just like God, you know, he's kind of like, he's like, uh, kind of like Clark Kent, you know, he, he looks normal, but he's really not, right? And so what happens is we're very, like, isn't that amazing? You know, like Jesus like Superman. And isn't that amazing what he does and what he says? And, and he's just so amazing. But, of course, he's God, and so you'd expect God to be good, you know? And so it's amazing. But what happens is that when it comes to imitating Jesus and following Jesus in our lives, we feel like, well, we can't really do that because he's God and I'm not, right? And, of course, there's some truth to that. I mean, Jesus didn't have the same sin nature we had and all. But what we need to understand was that Jesus lived his life under the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like he wasn't dipping into his godness to fuel his life. The scripture says that he laid aside his, his divine uh, attributes. He laid that aside. He didn't draw that. But he lived his life as, as the uh, prototype, kind of perfect man, depending on the power of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, he becomes a model for us of how to do that. 
okay? So for example, there on your note sheet, I put a great quote by a man named J.P. Moreland. He's a, a, a author, a theologian, a, a, a apologist. He's a professor at Biola University. But he wrote a book called Kingdom Triangle. And in this, he talks about Jesus. And, and I want you to follow along. This is really important. He said, when I was saved in the late 1960s, I was taught that Jesus' miracles proved he was God because he did them from his divine nature. Okay, how do you know he's God? He, he did these miracles, right? But of course, other people in the Bible do miracles. That doesn't really prove anything. Like apostles did miracles, prophets did miracles. He says, it's become clear to me, however, that this was wrong. For Jesus' public ministry was done as he, a perfect man, did what he saw his father doing in dependence on the filling of the Holy Spirit. Right? And so then he quotes this other theologian, Thomas Oden, and he says, Thomas Oden notes, as a man, Jesus walked day by day, and I want you to circle the next three words, in radical dependence, okay? in radical dependence upon God the Spirit. He prayed and he spoke by the power of the Spirit. And in portraying Jesus as constantly dependent on the Spirit, the Gospels were not challenging his deity or divine sonship, rather... Rather, as eternal son of God, the theandric person, and theandric just means God-man, the theandric person, he was truly God, while as man, Jesus was truly human. He was bone of our bone. He was flesh of our flesh. He was seed of Abraham, whose humanity was continually replenished by the Spirit. He did not walk or speak by his own independent human power, but by the power of the Spirit. So, so you follow me here? That, that Jesus, though he was 100% God, he didn't live out his life just kind of on his God juice, like on his God power, like it's this plug-in Superman. You know, that what he did as perfect man is he was anointed with the Holy Spirit, and he learned how to listen to the Holy Spirit and follow the Holy Spirit and surrender the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit empowered him to live this life as the second Adam, as the way life should be lived. And so he becomes this model for us. Now, this becomes very important later on, all right? So, so just laying the groundwork here. Uh, the first couple points were laying the groundwork before we're gonna, uh, number three. Okay, so number one, uh, Yahweh anoints Jesus with his spirit uh, at the baptism. Now, number two, the second point is that Jesus then in turn baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit, and then he baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. So in the Old Testament, uh, God had, had, had said that when the day of Yahweh came, uh, when, when the kingdom came, that, that he would take his spirit and he would pour it out on all uh, his people, right? We talked about that. Well, I'm going to give you a couple examples of those prophecies. There in your note sheet, one from Isaiah 44. Uh, the prophet Isaiah speaking to the nation of Israel, still in, in, in captivity in, in Babylon. He says, don't be afraid, O Jacob, which is another name for Israel, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. Now, remember the teaching of Jesus and how often he said this. He, he used the, the, the image of water as an image of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember this? Right? Jesus said, he who believes in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John says, in John 7, he says, and, and he was referring to the coming of the Spirit. And so that's Isaiah. And he says, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Or look at the next one. In Joel chapter 2, the prophet Joel says, in the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, I, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people and, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. What days? The day of Yahweh, when, when Yahweh comes. And so in the Old Testament, there had been these prophecies that when the day of the Lord, when the day of Yahweh came, when the kingdom came, God would pour out his spirit on his people, not just some prophets, not just some priests, but he would pour out his spirit on all his followers. And as a result, they would have these new spiritual gifts in their life, and God would, he would lead and guide them and change them and so on. In fact, this second passage in Joel, this is the passage that the Apostle Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost. So in Acts chapter 2, uh, we'll, we'll set it up. Remember, uh, Jesus has just ascended into heaven. So he, he dies, resurrected. He's with them a month and a half, 40 days. He goes back into heaven. He tells his disciples, I want you to stay in Jerusalem until the coming of the Spirit. He says, remember what John said. John said that 
I baptize with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He said, that's about to happen. Wait in Jerusalem until I baptize you in the Holy Spirit. So, 10 days later, it's the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost. Jews from all over the world have flooded into Jerusalem to worship. They all come from different backgrounds, speak different languages. On that day, Jesus baptizes his first followers in the Holy Spirit. They, they, they speak in languages they've never learned as they are proclaiming the works of God. The, a crowd gathers, people from all over the world going, this is crazy, I'm in Jerusalem, but I'm, I'm hearing my hometown language being spoken. And once the crowd gathers, Peter shares the message of Jesus. And he basically lays it on him. He said, you killed the wrong guy. Remember, this is only a month and a half after the crucifixion. It's right here in Jerusalem. He said, you killed the Messiah. Now, if you're a Jew, number one rule, don't kill the Messiah. Okay? Number two rule, if you kill the Messiah, you're in deep trouble. And so that's why they, the crowd responds. It says they were pierced to the heart. Like, what should we do? Like, we're dead meat in, in the Greek. And he says, what should we do? And, and, and so this is what Peter says. Now look what Peter says in, in chapter 2 of Acts. He says, Peter replied, uh, first of all, what do you need to do? Repent. Okay, you need to come under God's leadership. Turn around. You made a mistake, come under God's leadership. Secondly, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. He said, and two things are going to happen. First of all, you're going to receive a gift. What's the first gift? Forgiveness of sins. All, all, sin, all crimes against the king wiped away through the death and resurrection of Jesus in your place, right? So it's not your performance, it's his. He said, and secondly, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, so Peter and all of them had just been baptized in the Holy Spirit. He says, if you come to Jesus and you repent and come in his leadership, you'll receive the gift of forgiveness and you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You'll receive the, the gift of, of the Spirit. And so what, what Peter is saying is that when a man or woman comes to Jesus, that Jesus not only forgives us, that at that moment in time, he baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. He pours out his spirit. Now, this is important because in a room like this, there's a spectrum of people, of Christ's followers. Uh, I'm going to describe two ends of the spectrum, but you could be any, anywhere in between, all right? Some of you, when we talk about that when you came to Jesus, you were baptized in the Holy Spirit, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You, you saw a radical change in your life. You, you saw the word come alive for the first time. You, you, you fell in love with Christ. He captured your heart. You saw old things go, new things come. You may have even received some kind of, maybe uh, some very amazing, powerful spiritual gifts. You may have spoken in tongues. You may have received a gift of prophecy, gifts of healing, something that undeniably, you know, it's not, not from you. It's, it's from outside of you. And so, so for you, and, and even to this day, you sense the Holy Spirit in your life. You sense his presence. You sense his leading. You hear his voice. Uh, that for you, the Holy Spirit is very alive and real. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. You go, I get it. Move on. Next point. What's your next point? Okay. That's one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, and remember, you could be anywhere along the line. The other end of the spectrum, some of you are getting very nervous. You're like, uh, gee, I, I don't know if I have the Holy Spirit. I, I don't know. Um, I, it makes me a little nervous. I need, maybe something else needs to happen to me or something. I don't, I, you know? And it's for you I want to talk for just a second. Because here's what I want you to understand, is that often as Christ's followers, our need is not so much to receive the Holy Spirit as to learn to recognize the Holy Spirit. And let me give you a couple examples. One of the things the New Testament says is that no one can come to Jesus and give them their life apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. For example, let me, let me give you two passages to write down. We're not, they're not in your note sheet. But the first one is 1 Corinthians 2. Verses 12 through 14. The second verse is 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 1 through 3 passage. And, and what the Apostle Paul says is in context, he says, you know, this message of the cross of Jesus, him dying for us, he says, you know, to the world, that's foolishness. They look at that as ridiculous. He said, but to those who have been saved and called of God, he said, it, it's, the cross is the power of, of Christ. 
And he says, you know what? He says, no one can understand this message of the cross apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, the, uh, the man without the Spirit can't understand the things of the Spirit because they're spiritually discerned. Okay, so, so if you're here today and you believe in Jesus and you've repented from your past and you've come under his leadership and you love Jesus, I guarantee you, you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit because there's no possible way you could love Jesus and believe in Jesus apart from the baptism of the Holy Spirit, okay? Um, uh, often in our lives, when, when we come to Christ, it's the Holy Spirit that starts to change us from the inside out. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us a new love for people, a new love for God, and, and begins to give us a new internal, like a moral compass, a sense of right and wrong we didn't have before, that a new heightened level that we're drawn to the right. We say we're going to the right. That's the Holy Spirit. So, so like if you're here today and you say, you know what, I, I don't really know if I believe in Jesus. I don't really, not really surrender my life to him. I don't really know if I trust in his death. I certainly, I don't have that new compass. I don't really have that love. And I say, well then, okay, then you need to come to Jesus and be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You, you haven't come to Jesus yet. But if you're a true believer, I know you've experienced that. Right? I know that, that like when you're reading the Word, one of the, one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to instruct and teach us. And when you're reading the Word and the Word comes alive to you or it makes sense, um, when, when uh, myself or one of the pastors is up here teaching and you feel like the message is just for you, that's the Holy Spirit, you see? So many times we, we, don't, we haven't learned to recognize the Holy Spirit. But if, you, if, you, if you're a believer in Jesus, you love Jesus, I guarantee you, you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Does this make sense? Now, this is important because sometimes in certain Christian circles, uh, it's kind of a minority opinion, but in certain, minor, in certain, uh, certain and when I say minority opinion, I say, I'm saying minority opinion over Christian church history, there is a teaching that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is really a secondary experience, okay? That, that when you come to Jesus and you believe in him, you, yes, you receive the Holy Spirit, but you haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's a secondary experience, often evidenced by some sort of supernatural manifestation, most, awfully, most often the, the gift of tongues, okay? And so, so if you've been around Christian circles, and I wasn't really going to talk about this today, but I just want to spend about three, four, five minutes on it, because um, after reflecting on it, talking to some people last night at the service, I just felt like I just need to delve into it just a little bit, right? So, so if you've ever heard that teaching, if you ever come across that teaching, here's how it's going to go. People are going to come to you, and they're going to say, you know, it's great that you believe in Jesus. Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? What do you mean? Well, did you ever baptize? Did you speak in tongues or whatever? And you're like, well, no, I've never had. Well, you need to be. Okay? Well, why? Because, well, you have the Holy Spirit, but you won't be operating in full spiritual power until you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you say, really? I've never heard that before. Yes, and they will take you to one place and one place only, and it's the book of Acts. Okay? And there are four times in the book of Acts where, where you have some people that uh, either look like they claim to be Christ followers or uh, they are, they're, they're close to being Christ followers who have a secondary experience with the Holy Spirit. There's only four times. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them to you real quick in case you're going to check this out later. It's Acts 2. Let's go ahead and get it for Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts 19. And, and in, in all these cases, you have people that are either believers or look like they're close to being believers who get prayed for and they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and they speak in tongues. But what's often missed in these circles that teach that is that the book of Acts is giving you a story of the, the, the expansion of early Christianity from Jerusalem to Rome. It's describing a 30-year period of time, Okay. And so in the early church, the biggest issue in the early church was what does it take to be saved? And, and remember, all the first Christians were Jews. And the thought that anyone other than a Jew could be saved was like very foreign to them. And so what you have in the book of Acts is whenever the gospel jumps over a major people group, a racial barrier and goes to a new people group, 
God authenticates that and proves they're truly saved by pouring out the Spirit in, in a very profound way. It's very obvious. So in Acts 2 is when the Holy Spirit first comes to the early church, to Peter. He's talked about that. Acts 8 is when the gospel goes to the Samaritans for the first time. Acts chapter 10 is where the gospel goes to the Gentiles for the first time. And Acts chapter 19 is where the gospel goes to some disciples of John the Baptist who weren't disciples of Jesus. And in every one of those cases, what you have is God authenticating that, yes, I love these people too, and there's no better way to do that than pouring out the Spirit. Outside of those four passages, there is no evidence of, of a second baptism, the normative thing, in the New Testament. In fact, the opposite is true. I want you to look on your note sheet in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Here's how Paul describes this baptism. He's writing to Christians at Corinth. And he says, for we were all baptized by one, catch that word all, it's there. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body. It doesn't matter whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all given one spirit to what? To drink. And so what you'll see in the, in the new, if you look, stand back from, from kind of big picture story of the Bible, what, what you see is that the coming of the spirit is often described with different language. So, so we've seen today the baptism of the Holy Spirit language. Uh, Jesus talked about uh, rivers of living water language. Uh, often you'll see that they receive the Holy Spirit. You'll see that language. Right here you see the term, not only baptism, but the Spirit to drink. But it's all describing the same thing, the coming of the Spirit, the new age of the Holy Spirit that the Messiah would bring. And the only reason I'm mentioning this today, I, I usually don't go into this much depth or whatever on a theological you know, thing here. The reason I do is because it's very dangerous teaching. And by this, I do not mean that people who teach us are bad people or not brothers in Christ. I, love, I don't mean that. But what I mean is I've seen it damage people. Because what happens is that, that when, you, when you teach this kind of two-step thing, what happens is you create a church that has haves and have-nots. And the people that have had an experience like this, they begin down to look down their nose on the people that haven't. And the people who haven't had it, they begin to seek the experience. And when they don't get the experience, they begin to fear that something is wrong with them. They don't have the Holy Spirit. And it can just totally torpedo your whole walk with God. So, so just to be clear on this, I believe in all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the gift of tongues. I believe in the gift of prophecy. I have many of these gifts. People on our elder board, another, the only thing I'm saying is whenever you say there is one particular gift that is normative for all believers, everyone needs to have this experience, you set yourself up for a divided church and for huge hurt in the life of people. And I've seen it time and time again. And honestly, I don't even like to take time talking about stuff like this up here. But I feel like one of the jobs of a shepherd is not just to teach, but is to warn and to protect. And, and so I want to come alongside and say, hey, if you ever hear this teaching, uh, just understand, usually these are believers who love Jesus. They've often had a powerful experience, very real with the Holy Spirit. They want to experience the power. They want you to experience the power. There's nothing wrong with any of that, okay? It's just that it's misguided. And it can cause damage, all right? Okay, so second point then is, is uh, amen, amen, okay. Amen. And so, you know, what's going to happen? Like if you come to me and say, Mike, I was praying this weekend. I, all of a sudden, I start speaking in a language I never learned until I felt God's presence. I'd say, awesome. <laughs> just don't go to your life group and say, you all need this. <laughs> you just share, share what God did. And then if they want to pray and say, God, I would love more of that. And if God wants to do that, and then great. But, but God works different ways in different people. And every time you say it has to be this way or it has to be that way, it leads to division, it leads to arrogance, and learns to hurt and wounded sheep. And so that's what, that's what we don't want to do. All right. Okay, number three. Um, the third, third point then, um, and, and this is really pay dirt for us. This is where we're, all, <laughs> this is where we're headed today, is uh, that the spirit who is on Jesus is in you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Spirit who is on, and this is very profound. I, mean, when we, I, I don't know if you even begin to understand, I don't know if we begin to understand 
the day and age in which we live with the coming of Messiah. That with the coming of Jesus, we've broken into a whole new era in time and space where, where Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. What an incredible privilege that you have as a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit of God inside of you. In fact, this is one way you can distinguish between a Christian and a non-Christian. Like if I were to ask you, how would you define a Christian? You might say it's someone who believes in Jesus. And as long as you mean he trusts him with his life and follows him, I'm all over that. Great, good way. You might say someone who's repented and come under the leadership of Christ the King. I'd say, great definition. But here's another definition. A Christ follower is someone who has received the spirit of Jesus. See, this is what separates a Christian from a non-Christian. One has received the spirit of Jesus, one hasn't. In fact, there in your note sheet, look at the Romans 8 passage. It's not the first one. Yeah, it is the first one. Um, Where it says, this is what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, the person who does not have the spirit of Christ does not what? belong to Christ. This, this is a boundary marker. This, this is what separates the believer from the non-believer is that one has a spirit of Christ. That's why in the New Testament it says you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't you realize that your body doesn't belong to you? It belongs to, to God because the Spirit's invaded your life. So, so guess just the same Spirit who is on Jesus, that led Jesus, that empowered Jesus, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in you, Right? And so, so what do we know about this spirit? Well, in the Old Testament, it was prophesied when Messiah came, the spirit would be upon him like we've seen today. But look there on your note sheet at, at chapter 11 of, of uh, Isaiah. Look at the prophecy. It's about the coming of the Messiah. It says, the spirit of the Lord of Yahweh, the spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. We saw that today when the dove came down and rested on him. Right? Uh, and, the spirit, and so this, it'll be the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, Spirit of power, the spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of Yahweh. Uh, the fear of Yahweh is an Old Testament way of saying you love and trust uh, God with your life. You come under his leadership, you follow, you obey. He will, in fact, he will delight in the fear of Yahweh, okay? And so he says when, when the Messiah comes, the spirit will be upon him, and it'll be the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding and the spirit of counsel, and the spirit of, uh, of uh, power, the spirit of the fear of the Lord, and so on, the spirit of knowledge. And so this is exactly what we see when we study Jesus, right? We'll see this as we go through his life. We're going to see his incredible wisdom. We're going to see his understanding. He just understands how life works, who God is and who we are and how life works. We're going to see his counsel. Jesus is just a brilliant counselor. I mean, he's going to come alongside. It doesn't matter whether you're a top-notch religious leader like Nicodemus, the Pharisee, or whether it's the woman at the well who's been married five times, Samaritan, living with a, a man. It doesn't matter uh, anyone in between. Jesus is going to know the right thing to say at the right time. He's an amazing counselor. Right? So, uh, and, and then Jesus has this tremendous fear of Yahweh in his life that he he, he is a man under submission. His greatest delight in life is to please his father. His greatest joy in life. This is who Jesus is, okay? Now, now catch this. The spirit of Jesus is now in you. You have access to his wisdom. You have access to his understanding, to his power, to the fear of the Lord, his passion for his father. That if you're a follower of Jesus, the same spirit that was on Jesus is in you. And so what this means then is the secret of the Christian life and of following Jesus, it, it's not willpower. It's not our determination. It, it's not uh, kind of our, our skill set. It's not that the, the, the secret of following Jesus is tapping into the power of this spirit who's now within us, like Jesus did. It, it's to learn how to live in radical dependence on the Holy Spirit as Jesus lived his life in, in the radical dependence. You know, sometimes uh, I think of it like this, that our, the simple calling on our life is to listen and to follow the leading of the Spirit as he speaks. And, and as we do, that, that we will be transformed, we'll be changed. And, and so I think of it like this. When it comes to following the Spirit, it's much like this. Which way are you blowing? 
and I'm going to hoist my sails and catch your wind, and I'm going to go with you. See, the secret of the Christian life is not like rowboat Christianity, where there's Jesus, I'm supposed to be like him. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. <laughs> no, no, no. The only way I can follow Jesus and become like him in my life is through the power of the spirit of Jesus that's in me. It's not my willpower. It's not my determination. It's not my, my, my insight, my wisdom. You know, the only way I can walk the life that Jesus walked is by radical dependence on the spirit of Jesus. He lives in me. And, and so let's talk for just a minute about how, how we learn to listen and to follow the Holy Spirit. You know, I, I think for many of us, when we think of the work of the Holy Spirit, the first thing that comes to mind is the word conviction. And, and that's true, right? That the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. In other words, when we know that we're out of line, we know we're doing something that is desperately wrong, the Holy Spirit will convict us. Um, and so we, we know uh, I shouldn't be sleeping with my girlfriend. I know I shouldn't be lying to this, my boss. I know I shouldn't be ripping off my customers. I know I shouldn't be screaming at my wife all the time. And so the word tells me those things. I know them. They're obvious. And when I do them, the Holy Spirit will convict me. Okay? And it's important work the Holy Spirit does. He just makes life very uncomfortable until we come back. But most of us get that. We need to move beyond that. To listen to, to listen and follow moves beyond responding to conviction. Okay? That, that we, we need to learn to discern the presence of the Holy Spirit in a couple other ways. And I'm going to start with one of the most important ones I think we often, we often neglect is the word desire. And I want you to write down the word desire. That one of, the, one of the greatest ways the Holy Spirit leads us is by coming into our life and creating new desires. And remember, the Holy Spirit is a creator, right? And so he creates new desires. He gives us a new vision for our life. You're a husband, and the Holy Spirit begins giving you a new desire to be a better husband. That, that you, you, you want to have more purity. You want more generosity. You want to be a better leader. Uh, you want to have greater kindness. The Holy Spirit begins to create a desire in our heart for something we're not. So one of the number one ways he leads us is by our desires. Isn't that beautiful? That he creates new desires. Uh, a third way he leads us, uh, I'd like you to write down this word. I want you to write down the word disease, but don't do it like that. Uh, do it like this. Look, dis dash ease. Okay? Dish, dis dash ease. So D-I-S dash ease, dis-ease. What I mean by this is that conviction is about the obvious things, right? You have an affair, he's convicting you, duh, right? Obvious. You knew that, okay. Dis-ease is a little different. It's about those areas of our life that may not be an absolute right or wrong, but it's an area where the Holy Spirit wants to draw us to a new place, and so what he does is he begins to put us, make us uneasy with something we've been doing in our life that may not be obvious, but he just wants us to, to change, right? So, so it may be the way you're spending money, for example. Uh, may, maybe God has, has blessed you financially, and, and you have a lot of resources, but like the world around you, that, that the more resources you have, you just keep raising your standard of living, just kind of like the world around you would do. And what God wants to do is, I want to create a new heart for the poor. And so I bless you so much so you can give more. And so he creates a dis-ease. And you just find that when you, you go to buy that next toy or the next thing, or what, you just, something doesn't feel quite right. And there's nothing in the word that says you shouldn't do that. There's nothing wrong about that thing. Nothing wrong about to have that toy or that cabin or whatever the thing is. Nothing wrong with that. But the Holy Spirit is creating a dis-ease, you see? And, and he's, he's creating a hunger for something new. Um, in my own life, about three or four months ago, uh, there's a TV show. I'm not going to mention which one it is. Um, but there's a, a TV show that I've watched the last couple years when I'm working out in the garage. And uh, it's kind of gritty, kind of gritty show. Um, and, uh, and so for two years, I, I've watched it and uh, felt fine about that. But about three or four months ago, I just felt like there was a dis-ease growing. It was just like, 
I don't think I'm supposed to do this anymore. I, I think, you know? And so I just said, okay, so that was God. Wiped it out. I'm not going to watch it anymore. It's just because God was just doing something new, you see? Because of dis, a dis-ease. And so as followers of Jesus, the whole secret to following, becoming like Jesus, is starting to listen and to follow. And, and, then, and, then, and then as he creates new desires, as he brings his conviction, as he creates dis-ease, that we listen, we adjust, we follow, and, and then we change. Does this make sense? That we become like him. And so the question I would ask you today then, as, as we start this new series, as we start this new year, um, are you listening for the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life? When he's saying, when he's putting that desire in your heart, stirring it up to spend more time with him, are, are you listening to that? Are you giving in to that new desire? Or are you giving in to your old desire to stay up late and watch TV so you're too tired to get up in the morning? Which desire are you giving into, you see? Uh, he's creating a conviction about something you know is wrong. Which, which desire are you listen? The new desire or the old desire? As we go this way, because as, as we learn to listen, as we learn to follow, guess what? The Holy Spirit becomes stronger presence. Because this is what I learned a long time about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks, by and large, there's exceptions to this, because he's very gracious, but by and large, the Holy Spirit only speaks consistently to one kind of person. And you know what, who that person is? It's the person who's listening. See, the Holy Spirit's job is to help you follow Jesus. If you're not interested in helping following Jesus, then he quits talking. Let me tell you something. The moment you get serious about following Jesus you're going to begin to experience the presence, the leading, uh, the direction, the instruction, the comfort, uh, the presence of the Holy Spirit in new ways. Because when he sees a man or woman who is serious about following Jesus, he says, oh, they're ready. And I go. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful that we live in the age of the Holy Spirit, that because of the Messiah, because of his death, his resurrection, we've moved into a new era of time and space. The kingdom has come. Yahweh has come through Jesus Christ. And that we can receive your spirit. And God, I pray you'd, you'd forgive us when we grieve your spirit. I, I pray you'd forgive us when we quench your spirit by our, our disobedience or our unwillingness to listen. And, and we just pray for a fresh anointing of your Holy Spirit today. We pray for that in our church. We pray for it in our lives we pray that we would be a church, we'd be believers who are really lifting the winds, the, the, lifting our sails consistently to catch the breeze of your spirit. We pray that this would be a year of transformation and growth, that we become more like Jesus, that our lives would take on new purpose and meaning and joy, that we'd be filled with your love, your kindness, your gentleness, your courage, your peace, that we would become like you uh, as we pursue you, as we listen to and follow your Holy Spirit. We pray you'd turn this place in, this church, a place where the message of the coming of the Spirit is loud and clear and be a place where many come to receive the gift of forgiveness of sins and they're baptized in the Spirit and they move into a whole new era of their lives, a lives of following you. And so as we bring our offerings, we pray you use it for that purpose. And we pray it in Christ's name, amen. Well, that's good news, isn't it? We come to the age of his spirit. And uh, next week, uh, one of the things we didn't talk a lot about today, we'll talk about more next week, is that uh, when the spirit comes in our life, he begins to generate new desires. But uh, as members of Adam's race, we, we still have our old desires. The Bible calls them flesh, right? So what this does is it sets us up for a battle, uh, that, that when a person comes to Jesus, we step over this invisible line. We, we cross over from what the Bible calls the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And, and when that happens, we have a new target on our back. Uh, the, the, the moment that happens is that up to that time, uh, uh, Satan, uh, the, the great enemy, uh, is really not overly concerned with you in some ways because you're, you're no threat to him. Uh, he's going to be working on you. But when you become a, a Christ follower, you now become a carrier of the spirit of Jesus, and as such, uh, you become a threat to his kingdom. And so this is why we, we, when we step over that line to follow Jesus, we step into a new level of spiritual war. And it's very real. It's very real. And so we're going to see this in the life of Jesus, that, 
that immediately the first thing that happens after the Spirit comes upon him is the Spirit, Mark says, drives him into the wilderness where he's going to spend the next month and a half, 40 days, with his father. And it's going to be a time of spiritual preparation for his ministry and retreat. It's also going to be a time of tremendous spiritual warfare. And so next week, we're going to talk about this topic as followers of Jesus, people who've come to trust in Christ, people who have been baptized with his spirit, what does spiritual warfare looks like, and, and what, what should we expect, how do, how do we uh, enter into that and win that battle, so we enter out of that time in the power of the spirit as Jesus did. Um, now, one more thing is that you, you notice today that we, we talked about Jesus' baptism. He, he models this for us. You notice that, that he also said, uh, we I saw in Acts 2, that in the early church said, repent and be baptized, right? So that's a kind of two-step process, repent, be baptized. And that's why every few months here at Rocky Peak, we have a baptism. And so on Super Bowl weekend, which is uh, the, the third, <laughs> just happens that way, uh, that uh, we are having a, our next baptism here in our main services, all three services. And so if, you are, um, if you're a follower of Jesus, a new follower of Jesus, you haven't been baptized, this will be your next step to be baptized. If you're a long-term disobedient follower of Jesus, this will be a great next step for you to, uh, to follow Jesus, to be baptized like Jesus was, uh, to follow in his footsteps. And so uh, anyway, uh, in your program, it has all the information about that and where you contact, who you contact. It's to sign up for that. We'll get you some information about baptism, what it means. Make sure that you understand all that. And then we're going to have a great baptismal service in, in two or three weeks. So uh, until then, uh, may the spirit who is in Jesus, uh, may that spirit uh, be powerful in you this week. May the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding, may the spirit of counsel and the spirit of power, the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. May that spirit that's on him and is now in you be evident. May this be a week where you raise your sails to catch the wind of his spirit. May it be a week where several times every day you're checking the wind, you're listening for his conviction, you're listening for the desires, you're listening for the dis-ease where he's saying not that direction, and that together as a church we pursue Jesus, we become a church of passionate Christ followers being transformed and transforming agents of his in this world that so desperately needs the light of Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next weekend. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.